the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Bob Zadek Show, your home for insight and in-depth analysis. Listen live right here or join us at BobZadek.com. That's Z-A-D-E-K. BobZadek.com. The Bob Zadek Show. Ideas, not attitude. Information, not talking points. Hello, everyone. I'm Bob Zadek, host of the country's longest-running libertarian broadcast. We're nationally streamed 8 a.m. Pacific Time Sundays on the 860 a.m. app. My podcast archives more than a dozen of historical show issues. BobZadek.com offers resource material, book lists, other topical podcasts, and more. We strive to offer in-depth content on social, political, and economic issues that really matter. Always with the ideal guest, accessible and entertaining. Our rule, ideas, not attitude. Is the pandemic over? President Biden says it is, except insofar as student loan forgiveness is concerned, he says it's not. During the pandemic, did we follow the science? We did, according to Fauci, except, according to Faucho, Fauci, the science changes. We did, according to Dr. Walensky, except when the scientists were wrong, which they were, according to Dr. Walensky. Does all of this make you crazy? Today's guest, Justin Hart, agrees. Justin has just written, quote, gone viral, how COVID drove the world insane. Unlike Biden, Fauci, Walensky, and their sycophants, Justin knows what he's talking about. In addition to writing his book, Justin is an executive consultant with over 25 years experience working with Fortune 500 companies and presidential campaigns as a data analyst and has recently founded rationalground.com to provide us all accurate, data-driven observations about the issues which matter. Justin, welcome to the show. Bob, thank you so much for having me. Now, uh, Justin, you're a data analyst, and here you are writing a book, Draw That the COVID Experience drove the world insane. I didn't notice in your bio that you're a shrink, so we'll assume you can defend your decision to offer psychoanalytical opinions about nothing less than the world. But let's have our audience get to know you a bit, Justin. Now, you wrote this book about COVID. So the book was about a worldwide experience that just recently ended. But I didn't notice that you have spent your adult life writing books about problems around the world. So is this your first venture into authordom? And what have you been doing before writing the book? Uh, Help us understand Justin a bit and what motivated you to provide this psychoanalytical conclusion about the world. Well, fantastic. I'm going to go for some honorary doctorate of, uh, uh, of, of psychology from some college. They'll grant it to me. I guarantee you, Bob, after this, because I think the diagnosis is pretty strong. I'll, I'll tell your audience a little bit about myself. I, I grew up in the Bay Area. Uh, I went to BYU, uh, and then uh, after a while, I decided, you know, I love politics. So I I hightailed it to D.C., and this is in like 1996, okay, aging myself now. But I got there, and it was – I wanted to marry the internet and politics. But this was 1996. The internet was still just a glimmer and a few techies like myself, right? And so I I cut my – I decided, okay, well, I'll go back into the private sector, and I cut my teeth on the first dot-com boom and bust. I, I was building websites for Toyota.com, DuPont.com, Blue Cross, Blue Shield. I built all those websites just around the turn of the century. And then the bust came, and I said, maybe now, now's a good time to get into politics, but it still wasn't. It took going to 2008 when President Obama, 
handed us our hats on the right side of the aisle where I placed myself. And we were embarrassed, wholly embarrassed that we had they'd caught us, right? But then the Tea Party movement started up and things started to get really exciting online. And that's where I sort of entered the fray. I started my own consulting firm, helping senatorial candidates, uh, helping uh, people like uh, Chuck DeVore here in California. I was helping uh, Sarah Palin. I helped a bunch of people. And then I ended up actually in the last few days of the few months of the campaign on the Mitt Romney presidential campaign doing some black arts technical stuff that was really, really fun, bringing them a whole bunch of fundraising money online, super disappointed in the way that campaign ended up and decided, well, the next four years didn't quite work out for my future boss. And I hightailed it back to California. And there I went back into the private sector. I did a lot of stuff. I did a lot of leisure stuff. I did a lot of, uh, uh, I had a startup airline that I was part of, and I my background is in again data analytics, doing huge marketing upsells and lots of fun stuff there. And uh, when COVID started, I was doing a consulting business. I had three awesome clients. I'll tell you them about, and this will sort of be the the segue into this, which is one of them was golf excursions for baby boomers. The next one, parents sending their kids to college with an online consultancy. And the third one was a high-end vacation club for families. Now, you can imagine, those are my three clients going into 2020. By April, they were all out of business, especially the one that was By the way, I'm not going to ask you to help me pick stocks. Um, (laughs) Also... I Justin, when you were active in politics, you mentioned some names. You also mentioned to me before we went on the air that you were active in the Romney campaign as yes. well. So my question is, you mentioned the three uh, business activities that you were in right before COVID, and you mentioned the candidates you worked on before that, including Romney, my question, did you ever work on anything that succeeded? <laughs> That's a great question. Well, sorry I, to ask, I, sorry to, to raise that, but. Well, the, the ones I, I did resist. succeed at, I can't talk about because they were kind of black ops. No, I, I had a lot of great successes, I feel, um, in my uh, in the private sector. In the public sector and political one, yeah, I didn't have quite the home runs that I wanted there, but I picked the right horses still. He was the right guy for the job, even if he wasn't the best candidate. But uh, even now, you know, we look back and uh, what, what actually I, I've been doing since that time is just helping out a bit on the side. Now, one of the things about we'll talk about with uh, with COVID and with our, our team that I formed was that we ended up being one of the primary sources helping the Trump administration behind Dr. Scott Atlas uh, when he was at the White House, providing him all the data and charts that he needed to get things sort of righted and try to right the ship before, well, we lost the election and things went awry. But that's uh, so, maybe fast forwarding a little too fast. Bring me back, so Bob. You Where like, do you want to start? You, you like most of us, like as most of us did, you watched the performance of government at all levels, uh, state, uh, federal, and quite local, county and town level. And all of us, or many of us, scratched our heads and said, this is government, big G government's darkest moment. That's what we all said. But I just got angry and I just wrote checks to organizations that I felt could help turn the tide. You did something far more productive. You wrote, put together, decided to write, put together, and then published this book, uh, Gone Viral, uh, dealing with uh, the world going insane. So tell us the process that immediately preceded your writing of the book, because why didn't you just sit around like the rest of us, be really grumpy and really bad company for two years? Well, like you, I was pretty miffed, especially when all of my clients got canceled. And I thought, this is just not the way we should be doing this. And especially when I looked at this stuff. Now, a curious thing about me, in 2018, I was here in San Diego. I was vacationing on Carlsbad Beach uh, with my family. We had those uh, those trailers and it was a great week. By the end of the week, I was super sick and I didn't know what happened. Next thing you know, I'm in the hospital for two weeks. 
suffering from uh, a, a near uh, fatal dose of a staph infection. Uh, staph is that natural flora that you have on your skin, but if it gets into your bloodstream, it can do some wreak some pretty good havoc. And so I went into um, uh, into shock, and my my body started shutting down, and it became kind of a side hobby for me to try to understand. How did this little thing just completely almost destroy my body? And so I got into it. I wanted to know the numbers. I wanted to know the research on it. And then it came time for, time for COVID. And I started looking, well, I know the numbers on influenza. I know the numbers on these things. Something is off. Because Dr. Fauci was getting in front of Congress and saying, basically, one out of 100 people are going to die from this. And we said, we said I, I don't think that's the case. In fact, I, I'm pretty sure that's not the case. And as I say at the outset of my book, I'm not... Uh, a health uh, official. I'm not an expert in any way there, but I'm a darn good data guy. And normally, Bob, I wouldn't insert myself into someone else's domain, but they seem to have no problem inserting themselves into my domain, my business, my kids' education, my church, my gym, uh, you name it, they were there. And so I said, I'm going to I'm gonna give a little pushback here and find out what's going on. And when we did the math, we found out it was wrong. So we, we formed a ragtag bunch of analysts, activists, experts, doctors, and just moms and dads. And it was called Rational Ground. And we coordinated on Twitter. We coordinated over social media. We went on TV shows. We put out uh, infographics. Uh, we put out a lot of information trying to basically counter the usual narrative that the answer to this was to lock everyone down. Like, like here's a perfect example, Bob. We, we all know and everyone attests now that the key, as we say, comorbidities, that is the ailments that make you most at risk for COVID, are obesity and lack of vitamin D. So whose idea was it to stick us inside, out of the sun, eating takeout, getting fat, everyone putting on their COVID-19, Will, if you know what I mean, right? And, and, we, and then going out to face the disease. This was a terrible decision. And then when you come to realize that the median age, the average age of death is 80 years old, right? That's a much different pandemic than the one that happened in 1918, where the average age of death was under 30, right? And you realize when you do the math that our young kids who are still like the last ones masked up in preschools, that literally their risk of dying of COVID compared to an 80-year-old is 100,000 times lower. And yet we decided one size fits all. You get exposed to any which way you have to lock down. And then no one looked at the other side of the coin, Bob. And that's what we looked at. We looked at the other side of the coin and what we found frightened us. Now, when you wrote the book, when you're putting together the book, um, I have never written a, a book. Uh, I'm only guessing a bit how I might go about it. And I presume the book, you had some outline, very rough, brief outline in the beginning, and then you flesh it out as you went along. When you started the project, had you did you have in mind a conclusion? Was the for example, and I'm not prompting you because it is in the book, but your conclusion could have been government's horrible. We can't have government. Government is part of the problem, not the solution. Or it could be um, it's not about government. It's about a few individuals who were terribly wrong and had too much power? Or was it, a, was it a criticism of federalism? Or was it a pay-in to pure science and how pure science was ignored? Or was it some combination of those? What was, because you had to, you couldn't just be writing a book to say some mistakes were made. Uh, right. There's more to a book than that. So give us what was in your head or on paper as far as the conclusion that you were trying to achieve in the book. Well, what's crazy is building up to the book, uh, which I started to write at the end of last year, I had already already written hundreds of articles for my Substack and thousands and tens of thousands of tweets with my colleagues. In fact, our main domain was kind of Twitter. We were in the, the throes of things, and then it would get picked up in the press. We'd put together a meme. We'd put together a chart. Um, for example, uh, one of my most popular ones was trying to get above the noise, as I like to call it in marketing, Bob. I had a picture of one of the skater boys in Venice Beach, right? And they have that famous uh, skateboard arena right there on the beach, all carved into the ground. And they were so scared of these kids getting COVID that they decided to fill that with sand early on. 
like late March 2020. And it was ridiculous, right? And I saw this picture of this one skater kid, and he was standing in front of a bulldozer, and I put it right next to the famous scene from China where the man is standing in front of uh, uh, those line of tanks. The tanks. The yeah, tanks. Ex- Tiananmen exactly. Square. The Tiananmen Square, right? And so the the contrast was 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 found by a lot of people. Now, I, I made that rather stark, and it prompted conversation, but it was things like those that we got above the noise. Now, the crazy thing, Bob, I never intended to write a book. I was approached by Regnery Publishing, the same folks who do Mark Stein, Rush Limbaugh, Ann Coulter, all the great you know, conservative authors right over there. And they said, we want you to write a book. I said, well, that sounds easy. I've got all these, these great writings, right? And we outlined it. And by the first draft, they're like, I don't think this is going to work. Because I started translating Twitter into that book, and it it was it was a bunch of memes and pictures. Like, no, this isn't this isn't going to fly. And I said, wow, this is the the hardest thing I've ever done. So, got down. Uh, my wife sacrificed greatly as I sort of put myself up in a hotel for four or five days at a time to finish this thing off. But I made it very accessible, and the approach I finally landed on with the help of my editors was to say, let's talk about the myths. So basically, the entire book is chapter by chapter, myth by myth, and busting them left and right. So the first one we talk about is the myth that started the whole cascade, Bob, asymptomatic spread of the disease, right? That was, you know, we we learned all these vocabulary words over the course of the pandemic that increased our our knowledge. But also, uh, the asymptomatic meant uh, someone who has COVID, they don't know it. And we think they're spreading it. That was the main theory that Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci put out there. And that one assumption, Bob, led to mask mandates. It led to quarantines. It led to the six-foot distancing. It led to plexiglass. All of the nonsense rests on that assumption. We now know from multiple studies, Bob, that asymptomatic spread. That is, they must be spreading the disease. They don't even know they have it accounted for less than 1% of all of the cases. When you talk to people on how they got it, a lot of them sometimes don't know, but a good portion know that they got it at home because they were quarantined at home with someone else that had it, right? And so it's a, it's a really interesting piece when you look at all of these myths that are out there and we try to bust them wide open. And, and it's really written for someone who says, okay, I know something went awry. I don't know how to articulate it. My neighbor's still masking up in their car alone. My principal keeps threatening to shut down the school for quarantine another time in the fall. What are we going to do? And now you have the tools at your hand, the information, the quick stats, the rebuttals. And I hope it's a good read where people can say, I know how to address that. One little anecdote when you... Just a second ago, you mentioned your neighbor. You made reference to a neighbor sitting in a car by himself wearing a mask. And what I flashed to, Justin, is um, I was on vac during COVID when I was going out of my mind. Uh, I took a vacation. Uh, we went to Hawaii and we were in Hawaii and hotels were kind of half filled. But I went for a walk one morning and this hotel in Hawaii had a golf course. And there in the middle of the golf course early in the morning, was a gardener picking weeds by himself in the middle of a golf course wearing a mask. And and I said, wow, he's making sure the dandelions don't get COVID. I mean, there was nobody to the horizon, and yet there he was wearing a mask. Another anecdote to your story. Yeah, well, and and that's exactly a grounds of the title of the book. It drove the world insane. Uh, even my kids, my kids go here to, uh, or I, I, they did previously. I have two older stepdaughters, and they went to uh, a private classical Christian school here in San Diego. I won't mention the name, but this is a, a school that's built on the pillars of rhetoric, logic, reason, right? And yet my 14-year-old daughter comes home, and she says, you won't believe what happened at lunch today. I'm sitting there, and the lunch attendant comes to me, and she says, you're going to need to sit perpendicular to the, to the bench. Well, why? Because we don't want you facing your fellow students while you eat lunch because COVID only spreads in one direction, right? Or you think about this one picture. It's always seared into my mind, Bob. It's a, a, a Catholic priest, and he's performing his duties uh, for, for baptizing an infant. The mother is six feet away holding the infant in the air. Between them is the font. But the baby's not going to make it to the font because the bishop has a squirt gun. 
and the bishop is using a squirt gun to baptize the baby. I kid you not. It's right there at the oh top my of my goodness. Twitter feed. Oh You'll be goodness. able to see it. Yeah. And so we, you, you, we all had those moments, right? We go, this person is insane because of these policies. Your book, your book is, uh, I, I think it's fair to say, but you could, I will not, I don't want to take, put a label on the book. It's not a political book. It's, it's a, a book, um, appealing to the rational side of the reader. It's a book in favor of, rational decision-making, just as your website, Rational Ground, um, clearly is appealing to uh, an audience who has rationality as their goal. So, And the reason I'm mentioning that is when we started this discussion of the book, Chapter One, when you talk about Fauci and others who started off totally in the wrong direction. Now, my question is the conclusion from that chapter that is it a narrow conclusion that Dr. Fauci didn't know what he was talking about or was motivated by politics rather than by pure science? Or was it, could another doctor in the same position have done the same thing? Is your complaint about the person doing the job or is it a more broader complaint about how government is organized. What is the the issue? Having identified a clear mistake, what do you hope the reader concludes from that mistake? That Fauci was an idiot or something broader? Well, that, that's the right question to ask, Bob, because the next thing after the pandemic is, right, how do we make sure this doesn't happen again? So what transpired and how did it happen? Uh, I believe my kindest interpretation is that Dr. Fauci got taken by what was happening in China and thought he could play God to basically curb a respiratory viral aerosolized pathogen. And, and so he thought to himself, I can do this. I can actually turn it. And then he didn't change course because he couldn't save face. My worst interpretation is that Dr. Fauci uh, made these intentional choices uh, didn't care what the results were be. He basically just had set his course and it was going to be the case. Um, this man has enriched himself over this thing. He's also um, demonstrated the huge issues that we have with the pandemic. Even now, just the other day, Dr. Fauci said, I never recommended to anyone. I didn't shut down anything. And then we rolled the tape. And there's lots and lots of tape, Bob, of him saying, we have to shut down. This has to shut down. If you want to take care of this, you got to shut down. And we now know, if you look at something like California, where I am and you are, and it's just, um, you know, we, we know the craziness that we endured here. And then you go to something that was open, like in Florida, since June or May, even, of 2020, and you realize that the age-adjusted fatality rate, the number of deaths per million, is exactly the same between the two states. Exactly the same. Meaning that there is no evidence anywhere from multiple studies now, no evidence that these what we call non-pharmaceutical interventions, the six feet, the plexiglass, the masking, the quarantines, did anything to stop or sway the cases. And there's even a good deal of evidence to show that the vaccines certainly didn't do what they promised they would do and actually may have made things worse. So that was, uh, I, I don't know the intent of Dr. Fauci. I know what broke it is that he had unbridled control and then they unleashed, Bob, that unbridled that, that uh, control to uh, every county health supervisor and 13,000 school districts across the country. You and I, don't elect Wilma Wooten here in San Diego, who is our uh, county health director. And, and so there's really little way that we have or, or, or address redress that we have to hold her accountable. In fact, I have it on good authority. President Trump tried very hard to figure out how he could fire Dr. Fauci, but he couldn't. He is the highest paid federal employee in the history of the United States. He has the largest pension in the history of the United States. He has made disastrous error, but he built up so much political rapport. And there are things that need to change. So here's a great example, Bob. Uh, Dr. Fauci and former director of the NIH, who's supposedly his boss, Dr. Collins, sit on the committee and basically make the decision as to where all that billions of grant money goes. But they also make the policy. So if you come and you say, hi, I have this 
this really interesting study that's going to look at the effectiveness of masks uh, and show that, you know, all your all your different imp- interventions really didn't work. And they're going to go, well, we're not going to give you money for that. Right. It, it is a there has to be a separation of the science and public policy. Now, we all you're you understand because you have been a participant in both the public sector and the private sector. And we all of us know or strongly suspect if we don't know that you have somebody at the top who is in front of the camera, in front of the microphone, at the head of the table at the conference room, um, is the moderator in the Zoom call. That person is at the top. But we know Dr. Fauci as a representative of the person kind of at the top. If you were to visit him in his office, he's not wearing a lab coat and he hasn't got a stethoscope around his neck and he's not sitting around looking at looking through a microscope or whatever they use these days. My point is he is not doing the work to reach the conclusion. He doesn't stay up at night, I would imagine, reading detailed scholarly papers in order to make an independent intellectual conclusion. He has a large staff of specialists, of scientists who are doing the work. Now, and Dr. Fauci or Michelle Walensky or any other head of any other department or company merely is given the information, hears points of view, one would imagine, and therefore decides what the answer is, how the problem gets solved, and goes in front of the camera or wherever they go and reports the result. Now, so to say Fauci was wrong, I don't, um, this is a question. I don't understand how he could be wrong. He didn't do the work. Other people did the work. So were was the whole uh, CDC wrong and he was fed wrong information? Did they tell him the right information? And he, for whatever motives, um, selfish or charitable, he didn't follow what they told him. Do you happen to know with a bit, bit more precision how a mistake that serious was, or mistakes plural, came about? Yeah, so it, it kind of rots from the, the head down. And we know that Dr. Fauci, like you said, had never really seen a patient in decades, had his whole debacle in the 1980s with the AIDS epidemic, uh, and, and then went on to make these horrific, terrible decisions around lockdowns. A, a quick note on that. Here's one example of something he never even considered or looked at that's undeniable, factual, everyone understands it, and it's devastating. We believe that we missed during the spring just the spring of 2020, 250,000 cases nationwide of child abuse. Why? Because it's typically wide-eyed teachers and administrators who catch those things. A bruise on mom's cheek, something roughing up uh, Junior's arm, and they call it out, and that person is caught. We miss those because kids weren't in school, right? Millions of kids weren't in school, and that was... And But he, he ignored all of that, right? That was just one side of it. Another example... Oncologists were the first ones to ring the bells for us, Bob. They came to us. They said either COVID has cured cancer or something else is happening altogether. Because in April and May of 2020, they diagnosed half as many cancers as they would the previous year. The reduction in colon cancer diagnoses went down by 78%. And so where do those show up? Well, the people still have the cancers. They just were scared to go to the hospital because of the fear that Dr. Fauci induced in them. And I know this because we we were you know in daily contact with Scott Atlas, who arrived there in late July 2020. And he was brought in to say, I think we're doing the wrong thing. We need to right the ship. And he would counter Dr. Fauci with some of these facts and Dr. Burks, and they had no idea. Like you said, they're just fed the information. But what's crazy is down in the CDC, they weren't interested in this information at all. They would hide it. We have direct evidence that the CDC was hiding death numbers. Uh, they were skewing numbers towards their direction when it came to population numbers. So you've heard, for example, the number that came out at the end of December, that if you were unvaccinated, you were 100 times more likely to die than someone was vaccinated. We said, that's just, that's off. And we went back and we looked at the numbers. We realized they were using first 
old population numbers. They were using the worst of worst case scenarios at the peak of the pandemic, which had nothing to do with vaccination. It was crazy. And we called them out on it and they had to correct it multiple times. One, like here's another example from the CDC. And we're like, this cannot be published. Note that when the CDC puts out their weekly, what they call their mortality report, where they highlight some type of interesting factoid or uh, any type of study, these aren't peer reviewed. One of their ones that they call back to and they say, oh, masks work. They found two hairdressers in New Jersey who had COVID and wore face shields and were able to get a hold of 30% of their patients and found out that no one of those 30 patients had COVID. And they used that as evidence that masks work. There was no science behind it. It was completely anecdotal. Uh, They would have been thrown out of a freshman biology class for a random control trial. Nothing like that ever existed. So the entire outfit is corrupt. They have no idea what they're doing. And they take direction and they build a narrative. And if you don't t- if you don't tell the line of the narrative, you're gone, right? We saw that again and again. At the peak of when they were going to approve a next wave of vaccines, at the FDA, the two people that were in charge of that panel resigned quickly and suddenly. They were not going to be part of that sham. And so th- we have to clean house. It's the only way that's the, the, we, there's so much trust lost in our health experts, Bob. It's, we're going to have to clean house. Now, you also, of course, discuss in the book, and this has starting to become widely reported in what passes for mainstream media, and that is the hidden, but now not hidden, long-term effects upon children. Um, Psychologically, you mentioned child abuse. We don't have to go back and revisit that. And I presume, by the way, when you said, uh, I just, I'm going to digress for a moment. You said uh, 250,000, it is estimated, instances alleged of of child abuse have gone unreported or uninvestigated. I presume you reached that conclusion by looking at the number of reports one would expect under, as a baseline- Exactly. Under normal circumstances, you compared that to what the effect uh, or the same number during COVID, and therefore you concluded clearly the number of instances didn't go down. Therefore, all that went down is the uh, the regulatory system learning about it. And, That's right. And so th- it is an estimate, but it's a data-driven estimate. It's not Correct. just making up a number. And I wanted to be sure the audience understood that. It wasn't great, great just synopsis of that. Yes, it wasn't just a rant. It right. was just here's how we here's the conclusion. But if you want to see our work papers, here they are. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you know, uh, Justin, it's it's similar to when I either in social conversation to the extent that I have social conversations or with guests or with friends, I always observe having somebody tell me what they think or their conclusion is invariably boring. (laughs) Indeed, even when I tell me my conclusion, it's boring. What is fascinating and sometimes deeply fascinating is why you think it. That is to say, how you reach that conclusion. Did you like make it up or did you was your source material in reaching the conclusion something reliable? And I wanted to make the point that I made to show that this wasn't just the political trick of a politician in front of a microphone spewing out numbers because nobody in the audience is no, going to be able great. to Google it fast enough you, to find good, out he's making you're, it you're up. You're an excellent footnoter, and that's exactly right. And the book is actually, we, we back up everything with footnotes and sources for any of the assertions that we made. And then we had some really interesting interviews, Bob. Like all of us experienced, for example, let's go at a completely different topic, the TP shortage. Remember the, the March run on TP on toilet paper, right? And the the subsequent ones we had as well, when you'd go to the store and realize, oh, my gosh, those shelves are empty. They're usually full of toilet paper. Well, you know, I didn't quite understand why that was. So I went searching through the research and it comes to find out, um, you know, the world does half of its business, if you'll excuse the expression, in their business, right? At work, in their office buildings, at campuses. And when you shut down the world, all of a sudden the paper supply industry had to scramble because 
the supply chain and the type and quality of the TP that they deliver to, let's say, a baseball stadium, one of those big round mounts that you put in there, right, that goes for like a month so they don't have to keep coming back, is much different than the Charmin Fresh stuff that lasts you a week here with five girls in my house, right? And, and so that one of the things you, you come to realize is that it impacted the entire industry, and even it impacted the personal protection equipment because paper was needed so quickly to catch up to delivering all that charm and goodness. Here's the funny thing is they're still playing catch up. If your audience goes and Google this phrase, Charmin forever, you'll you'll find this very interesting and you know exactly what this conversation is about. It's a pole-mounted roll of toilet paper that will last you a month that Charmin will sell you because they have a lot of leftover stuff from all of the stuff that didn't get delivered on pallets to these businesses into Las Vegas airstrips. You know, it was just crazy the, type, the, the type of impact it had on every single industry. And no one stopped for a second to consider what sort of downline impact that would have. One of the, you said uh, also earlier in the broadcast, you mentioned um, you imagined or spoke about Donald Trump. So I think you're active in the, in the Trump presidency, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, and Trump was frustrated, you said, because he couldn't fire Fauci. But yet, but yet Fauci per se didn't have political power. He couldn't sign executive orders. Only the president can. So, and this, I'm asking this to lead into a more important question, but I'm going to build it up by asking just if you could explain a little bit that concept that, which you said, Trump couldn't fire Fauci. Well, of course he could. He could fire the attorney general. He threatened to. So Fauci was probably somewhat below in political power, the attorney general. So help us understand that because I'm leading up to really what do we learn about government and about how our government is structured and how power is allocated? What do we learn from the COVID experience? We're going to be talking about that in a moment, but help us understand as we build up to it, why it sounded like an opinion, but maybe it was a fact that uh, Trump could not fire Fauci if he believed Fauci was do was bad at his job. Yeah, it, it was interesting. They looked through it, and because uh, the National Institute of Infectious Disease, which he oversaw, was under the NIH, there wasn't a direct executive connection. Because he wasn't a political appointee, he had to be fired for other reasons. And so they, you know, I think in the end, they probably could have done it, but the pushback and the lawsuits that would have foisted from this were, were not worth it or whatever else. I'm not sure. Now, I have to say, I was a huge booster of President Trump. I predicted that he was going to win the election in 2016. My my friends, my former Romney uh, cohorts were very miffed at me for, for predicting that. I just knew he was on the right line. But also on that fateful day on March 29th, 2020, when the president got up there with Fauci, Burks and Pence and said, we are extending the two-week lockdown, I tweeted out Trump just lost the election. I knew he lost it then. I knew exactly because I'm a, I'm a study of dem demographics. And I knew that if even one or two percent um, of that older demographic decided they were too scared to go to the polls or even just take part in this or blamed him for it, that it was over, okay, that he was never going to win the election. Now, there were lots of shenanigans. And after the election, I was actually, my team was one of the, the few data analysts. Uh, we actually produced a chart which Trump held over the podium at one point. I was kind of excited about that. Well, during the, the heyday of all things, I mean, there were, I don't think there was enough fraud to overturn the election, but there was definitely not a free and fair election in many instances. But that's another story. But I really felt that you're right. The buck does stop with President Trump. I'll tell you also, one of the, I won't call him fiend because I feel that strongly about it, but I will say that one of the, the, the perpetrators of this was Vice President Pence. He was the one who took Dr. Burks on her rainbow tour across the country early in March to visit every single governor, uh, Republican and Democrat, and she would win them over with her praise. And that's why you had people that were seeming conservatives like Ohio Governor uh, DeWise, who was terrible on COVID, awful, shutdowns galore. And DeWine 
basically he got you know Burks got under his skin compared to DeSantis who took the time to get to know the data himself. And Mike Pence sheltered, sheltered that. I'll give you a quick story that I know insightfully. When Dr. Atlas, who faced just major headwinds at the White House trying to right the ship and get sensible policy back enacted, uh, when, when we lost the election and Dr. Atlas was on his way back to California on the plane, Mike Pence called a makeshift presser with Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci, who hadn't been seen for weeks or months, at the White House and put them back into play. It was their plan. It was their instigation. Pence shepherded it. And unfortunately, President Trump signed off on it. You mentioned in the book um, uh, something which I I didn't really think about that much until I saw your chapter 10 in the book uh, about something I wouldn't have imagined. You commented on the use of plexiglass. And I smiled a bit. And I nodded my head and saying, the guy's right. Um, <laughs> tell us about just, it's not the major point, but I highlight it because I hadn't thought about it before. And therefore, it's possible my audience hasn't thought about it that much. So just tell us about COVID and plexiglass. It was, it's a great microcosm of the entire insanity. You're right, Bob. So plexiglass, as we know, became a very strong recommendation for retail, for schools, for any place you go. They, they, they had the six-foot distancing, and then the plexiglass started getting installed. Hundreds of millions of dollars was spent installing these things because it was predominantly thought, Bob, that the main transfer of this disease was you spitting on someone else when you were sick and didn't know it. That's what they thought. They thought there's no way, but we come to find, realize that it's actually aerosolized. That is, you ever walk into like a, a bathroom or a small study and there's like a, a sort of a layer of dust that the, the sun shining through the window sort of just articulates. They go, wow, I had no idea there was so much dust in the room. Now imagine that particle 10 to 100 times smaller. That's what the COVID particle is. No amount of plexiglass is ever going to stop that. It'll go right around it. And in fact, in March 2021, the CDC, and here's another example of how just ridiculous and stupid they were, they quietly just removed the bullet point that recommended for schools and retail that they install plexiglass. They didn't mention anything about it, but a study came out shortly afterwards and said it probably made things worse because it gave more surface area for things to stick to, to bounce off of, to clean or otherwise. Just absolute disaster. Think of the hundreds of millions of dollars. I still go to Home Depot and Home Depot decided they were going to go you know, full DIY kit on it. They have these big metal mounts with these six-foot plexiglass in front of every cashier still. And they're all masked still here right here in San Diego. I don't I don't understand it. And so it's a it's a disaster in the making. It's just one more pinpoint of absolute ineptitude that our government agencies showed and that was implemented by our politicians and our unelected officials, the health officials. Just I'll ask you uh, for a, a comment or two about another bit of early incorrect hysteria. And I'm mentioning that because everybody will who's listening to our conversation will have forgotten about it, but everybody will instantly recall it. Remember when, when it was told to us that you could catch COVID by touching a surface that somebody else has right. touched, and all of a sudden, Everybody had spray bottles all over the place and everywhere on the sides of trees were dispensers of sani wipes. Um, when you walk yes, down the street, right. they're on stop signs. Right. Uh, so tell us about that fear. It was almost like the Salem witch trials or some, some middle ages superstition. If you touch the surface that somebody two years ago touched, you're going to get whatever they got. Well, so yeah. d discuss that and what you have concluded from the data, what they concluded ultimately about that bit of superstition. Yeah, and to this day, Bob, you still have people who will get the, the DoorDash groceries brought to them from Instacart or whatever else there, and they will spray the food before they bring it in the house, right? It broke those people. It broke the world that way. But you're right. This was what's, what's interesting is there is an actual uh, White House presser 
in early April, I believe, where the special arm of the Department of Homeland Security, who deals with these infectious diseases, came out. And they actually are some of the few people who actually found particles, were able to isolate particles of SARS-CoV-2, the thing that causes COVID, the virus. And they said that as soon as it hit sunlight, it evaporated. As soon as it touched the surface, it was gone. And so we knew early on that that was not the case, but people went crazy. And then the downline of that, and I mentioned this in the footnotes of the book, I think I maybe in the, in the book itself, but we talk about, for example, the people that run sanitation and these uh, water reclamation plants. They can tell you that the loads of clogs that they saw during that time required massive manpower to fix. They saw 70% more clogs than they would see. And the impact was just drastic and dramatic. And here's another one that's peripherally involved. We talked to a few people who are uh, engineers there on the Las Vegas Strip, for example. And when that shut down, there are no guests in any of the, the hotels. And so the engineering staff would literally spend the next two months walking up and down every hall every week, going into every room, flushing every toilet, running every sink, putting on every shower because otherwise that water would stagnate and you'd get even worse diseases. And so literally like 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 in The Shining and Jack Nicholas, they're walking the halls in this empty, abandoned hotel, just taking care to make sure that things are there because these cities were designed for a certain amount of people flushing and they weren't. And when they were flushing, they were flowing Clorox wipes down the drain and that was clogging up entire sewer systems. Crazy downline stuff that no one realizes. While as we are on this rationality role that you and I are enjoying during our conversation, what are the conclusions a rational reader of your book would reach? For example, and I'm going to coach you, but not asking you to nod your head that I'm right. The type of answer I'm looking for is, is your rational conclusion a conclusion that would proudly be carried on rationalground.com website, is it your rational conclusion that government sucks and government is stupid and and we're not going to get in, we're not going to digress, maybe we will if we have time, into public choice theory and James Buchanan, but we may get there, but that's not what I'm driving at right now. Is it your conclusion that this was the mistake of a few scientists who weren't good at, or a lot of scientists who weren't good at their job, was is it the case that they may have been good at their job, but they put aside the science for political motives? Is it the is it the case that this is not a commentary on the competence of anybody, but on the structure in which we all live? Is it a comment on federalism? What are the conclusions, the rational conclusions, the most rational conclusions you would hope the audience would get from your book? Well, I, I hope they would get a couple things. The first one would be the, the same. I asked that same question of, of Dr. Atlas when he was at the White House. I said, what, what is the problem? Are they just trying to save face? And he said, no, Justin, these people are dumb. They are dumb. And that was unfortunate. But I, I, and I think you can come along along with um, a lot of those conclusions. But I will say that one conclusion I hope that people come away with is that a good portion of our populace decided to fold their table, right? They decided that their rights weren't worth fighting for, that their rights to religious assembly, to assembly itself, freedom of speech if they censored us, our kids' education, uh, the pursuit of happiness, right? I would say about 20% of people were kind of in my camp really sticking their neck out. And, you know, it could have gone a very extreme way and we would have lost our heads. Another 20% were full in on what we call team apocalypse, right? They were like, the sky is falling. And if you even dare say it's not, uh, you should be silenced. There were about 60% of the population, I'll tell you, Bob, who didn't stand up, who didn't stand up and did not take, in, you know, take the risk to say, uh, we need to do something else. And I hope that people come away from the book reading this and say, you know what? I hope that we have a, um, I hope I take a stand next time. I hope that I'm brave enough to do so because it's going to come back again. I hope people will look inwardly on it. The, the lesson I would hope that readers would get from your book is to undo 
this assumption that a human being who happens to get a paycheck from a governmental entity is, for that reason and that reason alone, more honest, (laughs) smarter, more selfless. It's a human being. The biology is identical. And if you start with the same skepticism when a government official speaks as when a huckster promoting a product on late night television speaks. You listen and you are skeptical and maybe you're persuaded in the margins, but you're skeptical. But that skepticism seems to be infinitely weaker, if not non-existent, when the spokesperson is a governmental official. And if we just allow ourselves to remove that mantle from somebody who happens to get a paycheck from government and accept the fact, whatever you may think of the most, who you perceive to be the most venal private sector player, if you apply only that skepticism to the government official that you do to a private sector official, if you do, there will be a lesson that gets reinforced in your book. It really just invites people to not be sheep and blindly follow somebody who happens to get a governmental paycheck versus somebody who gets a private sector paycheck. Uh, The book is called Gone Viral, How COVID Drove the World Insane. The author is Justin Hart. Justin is one of the founders. Yes, Justin, the founder of RationalGround.com. And in the few seconds we have, Justin, tell us about RationalGround.com, what the website hopes to accomplish, and how people can benefit from the work you've put into the website. We have about a minute left to share with us about Rational Ground. So Rational Ground, like I said, just a, a ragtag bunch of, of really interesting people that were countering the regular narrative of the pandemic. You can find a bunch of resources on there, everything from lockdowns to kid masking. We have all the infographics there, things you can share around and just remind yourself why you fought the good fight around uh, against the government narrative there. Justin, thank you so much for sharing uh, what you have learned and shared with us in your book and what you continue to share with us at the website, higherground.com. Once again, Justin's book is just coming out, Gone Viral, How COVID Drove the World Insane. Justin is in the driver's seat now and hopes to drive us back from the insanity back to rational ground. Thank you so much, Justin. And please, to my friends out there, I hope you have enjoyed this hour of your valuable time that you have given to Justin and to myself. And I hope you continue to follow my show and Justin's writings as well. Thank you so much and enjoy the rest of the weekend and the rest of your time. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.